Hey guys, uh, welcome to Learning with Bell Vista Studios. Today I am here with Ian, who I've met a few times now, and the theme of today is around communication. And before we get into combo with Ian, I want you to just pay attention to how he actually communicates, because what I've observed is that he has a very engaging way of holding presence in a conversation and getting attention to be heard. And so I like to observe him to improve my own skills, but I just ask you to reflect on that as you're going through what he does and doesn't do that you might be able to implement into your own way of communicating. Um, but yeah, we've spoken to Ian a couple of times around communication. And one thing, Ian, that I'm more curious to find out about is you talk about uh, introverts and extroverts in the training classroom. Mm-hmm. Now. Yeah, I would say I'm situational to how I show up as one, but right. go into it and let me know more about it. How can a facilitator, you know, help them better to learn? Mm. Um, excellent. My my experience, uh, I'm a, my background is psychology, 30 years as an organisational psychologist. My sense is that one of the biggest detractors from effective dialogue is the fact that we have, in most conversations, introverts and extroverts. And we don't need to know who they are. Um, But let me explain a little about, from a psychological perspective, how introverts behave and how extroverts behave. Extroverts are people who are born, and this is from um, not my own literature, this is hands I think for those who want to follow that up. Um, Extroverts are born with insufficient cortical stimulation. They crave to have something going on in their cranium. Extroverts get the excitement that they need by doing stuff and saying stuff. Now, extroverts are also what we call vocal processors. Now, vocal processors are people who talk in order to help themselves to think. Mm. The consequence of that is that what an extrovert says is not necessarily what they mean until they've heard it. Wow. And so they can start off with great conviction and energy telling you they're heading south. And as they talk it through, they'll start to tell you they're heading north and they don't know they've changed direction. By comparison, introverts are born with excessive cortical stimulation. Their minds go at 100 miles an hour and they spend most of their life trying to avoid external noise. Now, the consequences of having introverts and extroverts together is that extroverts to introverts can be noise. Mm. And so introverts, even if what the extrovert is saying is riveting, introverts can tolerate that external um, stimuli for probably a minute, a minute and a half, after which their mind starts to wander and they (laughs) retreat and they pull down the blinds and go and hide because the noise actually hurts. When we have a group of people together, commonly the extroverts take up about 80% of the airtime. In Australia, they only represent 40% of the population. So it doesn't make a lot of sense for 60% of the population to get 20% of the airtime. What we need to do is to find ways of, without needing to know who are introverts and extroverts, maximising the value of both. Because the problem for Uh, introverts is that what an extrovert is saying by the time they get to the substance of what they want to say having talked it through 
by then the introverts have often gone off in hiding. So they don't hear it. Conversely, the extroverts don't know what the introvert is thinking because the extrovert's too busy occupying their time and not listening. So we are denied the wisdom of each other. So what we need to do is to recognise there probably are, in any group of four or five people, both introverts and extroverts present, and we need to design the conversation in such a way that honours both. Now the way we can do that is to separate the conversation into components that favour the introverts and then components that favour the extroverts. And we do that by, in response to whatever the subject matter is, three minutes of thinking and writing, no talking. Yeah. Introverts love this. This is their territory, right? They can sit and write and because and, 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 their head's going um, and they can get down their thoughts. Once they've got them down concrete on paper, they are much more willing to talk to them. After three minutes, after which, by the way, if you ask an extrovert to be quiet for three minutes, they find that almost unbearable. They will sit uh, quietly biting their tongue until the, the tension becomes too great and they'll start whispering out of their corner of the mouth to the person sitting next to them because they have to. After which, the conversation can open up and we can hear from both. That's cool. Mm. Any other tips like that? I really like that practical um, application. Let me just ask, I'll, phrase, I'll, I'll, I'll preface this by asking you a couple of silly questions to oh, you and your listeners. <laughs> in the world at large, in public settings, governments, corporations, churches, doesn't matter, who has more influence, men or women? I'll say men. Men, yeah. definitely. If you look at boards, I mean, there's, a, there's an obvious movement to increase the number of women on boards, and that that's, should be applauded. And the reason for that argument is there aren't enough. Okay? So in the main, most decisions are made by men in, in, in the macro sense. Not, not necessarily in the household, but in the macro sense. Who has more influence in public settings? People that are senior or people that are junior? Senior. Yes. Unknown or well-known? Well-known. Quiet or dominant? Dominant. Shorter or taller? Tall. Deep voice or high voice? Deep etc 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 everybody knows the answer to these questions yeah. Kim. whenever we get a group of people together in conversation unconsciously these factors sway the direction of the conversation which of these factors has an unnecessary connection to wisdom none of them none of them <laughs> oh, wow so what would happen if we could redesign the conversation yeah so instead of people talking to each other which will trigger unconsciously those inclinations to defer to the tall, you know, handsome, dominant male, yep. right? What if we could, instead of talking to each other, talk only to the topic? The conversation changes dramatically. All of a sudden it's equal, all of a sudden it's respectful, all of a sudden there is no disagreements whatsoever. No disagreements whatsoever. And so people enjoy being in these conversations. Mm. Give me an example of talking to the topic. Okay. Um, we're at the moment talking about communication. Yep. And so if we had five people sitting around this table, we could say, um, what does communication mean to you, Kim? Yeah. Right. And Kim could spend three minutes writing down her answer before she talks to it. Yeah. Right? And so could everybody else, because the, the three minutes is shared, right? Yeah. The, the talking is serial. 
but the three minutes is shared. Everybody's doing the same thing. So you you, you talk for a minute, yep. right? And then somebody else talks for a minute. You invite the next person who you want to have talk, right? Talk for a minute, right? And anything they say, you don't respond to. You don't nod in agreement. You don't smile in agreement. And you don't disagree. Now, why would that be? Because that seems sort of counterintuitive mm. as well. Because if I say something and you nod in agreement to me, but don't nod in agreement to Sophie, what's Sophie starting to think? Yeah. Right? There's a bias creeping in about what your persuasions are. And what we really want to do is to have all of the contributions treated as equal. So do you have to set those expectations up front? Because even yes. now I'm nodding with you, I'm saying yes, I'm going wow, but if because if you were, if weren't getting that verbal feed, uh, the feedback from me, how would you feel inside? So are you communicating that like at the beginning of a meeting, saying, "Be neutral," doesn't mean your idea is shit, but and then people know. Is that what's going on? Right. Well, in order for any conversation to be effective, but let's step back. Um, think of a meeting that you have been to, or a conversation that you've been part of, that did not go well. Can you do that? Yep. Can you think of a perpetrator of a behaviour that annoyed you? Yeah, non-responsiveness? Uh, whatever the, whatever yeah, the yeah. behaviour is. Yep. Right? Can you visualise the person yeah. who was the perpetrator? Yeah. Yes? Okay. Now, if we ask six people around the table exactly the same question, what's the probability that you visualise someone at the table? Hi. Yes. What's the probability that somebody visualised you? <laughs> yes. Equally high. Yeah, yeah. Equally high. Right. So what causes that conversation or meeting not to be as satisfactory as you would like it to be? It's like our biases and stuff hold us back or judgment and stuff. Is that what you mean? Or? Normally what will upset you mm. is that when somebody does something that you think is inappropriate, talks over you, has a side conversation, arrives late, plays with their phone, it doesn't matter. They're engaging in a behaviour that you think at that moment in time is inappropriate, right? What they've effectively done is they've violated your social contract as to what you thought was an appropriate behaviour. Wow. Yes? That's yep. what's happened, right? And so each of the people in the gathering each have their own social contract has told you what they think is appropriate and it's secret because we haven't explicitly said yeah, what yeah. it is now we're meeting here imagine and it's it's getting close to three o'clock imagine you were driving here today yep and a policeman pulled you up and said excuse me kim do you realize you've just violated violated the friday rule that'll be 250 dollars thanks and you say, what's the Friday rule? And the policeman says, never you mind. That'll be $250. Thanks. How do you feel? Not very good. Pissed off. Why? Because it's unknown. He's, like, done Indeed. something that I'm not okay with. Indeed. Similar scenario. You're driving here today. Right? Policeman pulls you up. Excuse me, madam. Do you realise you've just been clocked at 50 in a school zone? Right? Where the limit is 40 from 2.30 to... 30 whatever yeah it'll be 250 dollars thanks how do you feel 
Yeah, totally different because I know that I broke the boundaries. Exactly, exactly. Because you knew what the boundaries were and that the boundaries were impartial. They weren't Kim-specific, they were anybody-specific, right? So nobody was paying out on you when you got pulled up because anybody could have been booked, mm. right? And so if we're going to manage inappropriate behaviour at a meeting, we need to know explicitly what the behaviours are. And the only way to do that is to have the group generate. Now, let me ask you another silly question. What's the difference between a draft and a breeze in terms of air movement? One's bigger than the other, like stronger. Which do you prefer? Do you prefer a breeze, a breeze or a draft? A breeze. Yeah. A breeze is what you get when you open the window. And a draft is what you get when some other bastard opens the window. If we're going to have a set of rules for our collective behaviour, we'd better generate them ourselves and not have someone else impose them. Mm. Then we own them. And the easiest way to do that is to begin, and if you're with a group of people that meets regularly, is to be, have a specific conversation early on that says, what are the sorts of behaviours that, should they occur, would annoy us, that would detract from the quality of this meeting, and list them and then decide every one of them to find the opposite and make them your code of conduct. That's cool. It works. It's beautiful. Okay, I can see this being so effective for workplaces. To get it across a workplace, is it done on the small scale where everyone's setting those kind of boundaries up front in the, their own small meeting and therefore it trickles through the organisation? Like how? Because this would have a huge impact on company culture. Mm, it does, it changes the culture. So how do you get it? Like you got 2,000 employees, how do you do something like that? Um, I, I would be very surprised if 2,000 employees came up with 2,000 appropriate guidelines. Mm. We're all human beings. We have a fairly common understanding of what is appropriate and what's not appropriate, right? So it's not a large set of guidelines and it doesn't matter if we change them. Because for the, at the beginning of any meeting, and the reason we came, come back to the inappropriate behaviour, something that annoyed you, right? Something that violated your implicit social contract. When a meeting doesn't go well for us, it's because our implicit or explicit social contract has been violated. And therefore, it's useful to talk about the notion of a social contract for a meeting or for a conversation. And it has four parts, and any one of them can be violated. And most of meetings that I've ever spent time in in my life don't specify the social contract. Mm. And we should. And the four parts are, what are we here for? In other words, what's the purpose of our conversation? What's the shared outcome we're looking for? Why are we here? Why have you called us together, right? Number one. Number two, What's the time frame within which we're working? We're we here for an hour, we're we here for half an hour, we're we here for 45 minutes. We might specify the starting time, but do we specify the finishing time, right? Um, and do we specify the starting and finishing time for each agenda item? No, but we should, right? And then the part of the social contract that's almost never made explicit, and we've talked about it already, is what are the appropriate behaviours? What's the code of conduct we'll endeavour to stick with as we hold our meeting? Mm. Right, because if you have a code of conduct that's agreed by the participants, 
then if you inadvertently, if someone inadvertently violates it, then anyone else in the bed could say, hang on, we can just remind ourselves of our code of conduct. You don't have to refer to the person who violated it. You don't even have to refer to what the, the nature of the violation. You just gently bring people back to the code of conduct and someone will self-censor, and most of the time that will fix it. If that doesn't fix it, you say, um, ground rule number three, it looks like we've missed that twice, right? And that starts to make it more targeted. And if that doesn't work, um, ground rule number three has been broken on this side of the table for the third time in the last minute. Right? <laughs> and that starts to become more targeted. So this is the way you manage behaviour without necessarily embarrassing people. Um, and the fourth part of the social contract is the first part being, what are we here for? Second part, how long have we got? Mm -hmm. Third part, how will we behave together? And the fourth part, who are we? The social component. Right. Right. And the social component, generally, we should start with at the beginning because people are first and foremost social. And so if we're going to have constructive, productive, interpersonal conversations, then we need to understand a little about who's in the room and what their emotional state is. So for example, we could start with a group of people that meet regularly, we could start with what we might call a check-in. Um, G'day folks, let's just do a, a, a quick walk around the table. Um, anybody want to share anything, highs and lows of their week? Right, someone say, oh, I had a bugger of a morning, couldn't get the babysitter, or um, yeah, you know, my wife just won the lottery, or whatever it happens mm -hmm. to be, that they're willing to share. It humanises who's sitting around the table we can then get down to work. What we don't want to do too much of is to mix up the social stuff and the business stuff. Um, I'm sure many of us have been uh, belong to a particular group where one of the participants makes it their primary role to be the clown and cracks a joke or something at an inappropriate time. So there's a time for appropriate social behaviour and there's a time where it's not appropriate where we're particularly um, our agreed social contract. So the social contract again, what are we here for, how long we got, how we work together and who are we. And each of those um, four components has underpinning it a whole suite of skills. Mm. Which uh, are? <laughs> well some of them. We've got an hour here, we don't have a day <laughs> or two days. Um, what do you think are the most critical ones then? People learning not to respond to each other. People learning to acknowledge that everybody's point of view is valid for them and that nobody is wrong. So never disagree with anybody. There are times where someone will say something and you feel strongly, you know, it triggers a, an emotional response for you, perhaps a negative one, and you want to tell them, right? That's wrong, or that, that couldn't possibly be true. Let me ask you this question. If you look out of the front window of your house, you see something. Mm -hmm. If I look out the front window of my house, I see something. And they're different. Neither is wrong. Yeah. They're different. I like your analogies. Yeah. <laughs> so, if somebody says, today's Tuesday, and someone else says, no, today's Friday, how do I know what calendar they're using? They might be using a Mayan calendar or a Hebrew calendar or a Gaelic calendar or something else. Right? It doesn't make them wrong. Even if our opinion differs from their opinion, it's actually important to say so. 
but say so as an expression of dissent, not as an expression of disagreement. Disagreement is, Kim, you are wrong. Dissent is, Kim, my experience differs from that. So what I'm, what I'm trying to avoid is you being defensive about your position. And what I'm trying to encourage is curiosity between your position and my position that we then explore. As, as allies rather than as opponents. Yeah, yeah. What are some ways you can frame that uh, to be curious? So you, one example you just gave is my experience differs. What's some other ways that you can um, say it? Uh, example is um, you validate what the person just said. Mm-hmm. Um, Kim, um, that perspective differs from my perspective. Can you tell me what underpins that for you, please? Right? Or, where, or where that idea came from for you? Mm. Right? Um, the, the simple, basic homily is, if I want you to listen to me, firstly I have to demonstrate I'm willing to listen to you. And that's the greatest weapon you have in your armory. Your curiosity out there. Right? Not pushing your point of view, because if you push your point of view, particularly if you disagree, I mean, this would seem ridiculous, but it's true. If I want you to stop listening to me, I disagree with you. Because <laughs> that's your instinctive reaction. Your instinctive reaction is in order to defend yourself and defend your position, right? And that becomes the name of the game. Ego defense rather than curiosity. And what we're trying to do is nurture curiosity. So one of the things that I do in my workshops, and I call this, all this stuff cooperative conversations. So people can find it on the web, www.corporativeconversations.com.au. In corporate conversations, one of the things that I do in the workshops is that I put on the tables toys. And they are curiosity toys. They are books of, little photographic books of homespun philosophy or poetry or wire puzzles or an invitation to make a balloon animal, anything that stimulates a sense of playfulness and curiosity and childlike wonder. Because if we have childlike wonder, um, then we're open to all sorts of possibilities, including the coexistence of opposite points of view, both of which can be valid. I feel like the stuff you're talking about essentially at the core creates a better human Absolutely. and therefore I can see the benefit of employees feeling valued and then increased productivity and stuff like that as a result of all this yeah because employees being feeling valued when you and it's been done for the last 50 years Kim um, researchers will ask employees what's the most important thing for them and they'll list 10 things, and they'll ask the employers what they think is the most important things on their employees list, and they're reversed. <laughs> employers think money, right, is what's most important to employees, and what is most important to all human beings is recognition and validation for who they are. So that's what this does. It validates everybody. So there's no disagreement whatsoever occur. Everybody gets equal airtime. Everybody's opinions are valued. Everybody's opinions are recorded visually. Um, 
decisions are made um, democratically rather than autocratically. And unfortunately, um, the organisations that don't like this methodology are those that are command and control organisations. Because the methodology that I'm describing illustrates the talent of everybody, not just the bosses. That's cool. And wisdom can come from anywhere. Now there's a parallel, monkeys. Um, part of my uh, interest is evolutionary psychology. Right? So we can learn a lot by prim primates, we're primates. Monkeys will roam in a band, say of a troop of monkeys, six to eight, 10, 15 monkeys, through the forest within oral distance of each other, not visual distance, because in a forest, because lots of trees about, the distance that you can hear each other is greater than the distance you can see each other, right? So we spread out as far as we can spread orally uh, and hear each other orally and we wander through the forest. Right? When any of the creatures find some food, it calls to the others to share it, right? So that, and that's random. But no, no idea who's going to find it. And then they continue to roam. So in this scenario, where the acquisition of food is random, leadership is completely unnecessary. Watch what happens when they come across a tree laden with fruit. All of a sudden the behaviour changes because all of a sudden the alpha male will take charge and the resources will be distributed unequally down the stratified pecking order, right? And even the lowliest monkey will play this game because they know if they don't play it they get banished and get nothing, right? So, on the one hand, monkeys, including human beings, primates, know how to operate collaboratively and to share. They also know how to operate competitively, hierarchically. Right? The difference between the two behaviours, whether it's competitive and hierarchical, or whether it's collaborative, is whether re available resources are centralised or not. That's all. That's all. The minute you've got centralised resources, you have hierarchy. Right? Human beings fabricate hierarchy with centralised resources. We call them budgets, we call it legislation, we call it power structures, we call it whatever we like. It negates equality. Right? Now, um, a society would be much better off, we talked earlier, about having an increased number of women in senior positions. Most, and, and there are some groups of primates that are matriarchal, nevertheless there is still a pecking order. Right? Now, hierarchy is generally, in um, the human world, the construction of um, by males. Males create hierarchy in order to, to differentiate rank and status and power. Right? Now, wouldn't society be much better off if it was collaborative? Yes, it would. Guess who the females choose to mate with? <laughs> That's the paradox. Right, the most destructive forces in our society, hierarchy, right, is perpetuated by the mating choices of women and the construction of males to create hierarchy and power. Right? And the, the concern of hierarchy is always short term. Why? Because males produce sperm and females produce eggs. Males produce 12 million sperm an hour. Their mating choices aren't very significant. Females produce one egg a month. Their mating choices are immense. Males think short term. Most community development 
um, champions and long-term thinkers are either um, women or men who have learned to think like them. For example, um, in Australian Aboriginal society, my limited knowledge of anthropology is they had no leaders. They had groups of respected elders um, and the elders would watch the children and early in the lives of the children they would um, suggest to each other that particular child would be great at tracking echidna and that particular child would be great at um, hunting honeybees and this particular child would be really good at finding yams or whatever, mm -hmm. right? And they were then apprenticed to so someone who was good at that role, right? So by the time they were adult, they were competent in it and they can contribute to the welfare of the tribe. But what's very telling about the roles that were ascribed to the female children versus the male children was the roles ascribed to the male children were much, much narrower. They didn't get as much knowledge power as the women. So they didn't get too cocky. North American Indians, First Nation people of North America, society that's only 10,000 years old, as opposed to Australian Aboriginal 60,000, 10,000 years old, they have a, a, a hierarchical system where they do have a male in charge. And the male is selected by the matriarchy. The women decide which male will put the interests of the community ahead of himself. And they can sack him. Isn't that wonderful? Wow. That's so fascinating. Wonderful. It is fascinating. Yeah. So what Cooperative Conversation tries to do is to create because coming back to the monkeys and, 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 and roaming widely across the forest floor as opposed to hierarchy with central resources. Society has been kept safe for 90,000 years because of the wisdom of the elders. The elders know stuff and if we want to live as long as them, we better pay attention to what they know. Okay? However, the wisdom of the elders is predicated upon the environment in which they learnt that knowledge being the same environment when they impart it. Mm. And that is no longer true. The world has changed so rapidly. There are th three world watersheds in the development of humanity. The first watershed was when instinct alone was insufficient to keep humanity safe. And we started to ask the elders what they thought. Right? So that was the first watershed when we combined both instinct and tribal wisdom. Right? The second watershed when we realised that in fact society was starting to change rapidly and perhaps all of that wisdom the elders had did not apply to the circumstances we're finding today, right, was the realisation that maybe we need to find contemporary solutions to contemporary problems rather than ancient solutions to ancient problems. Right? And we're now at the stage where even contemporary wisdom is insufficient to enable humanity to tackle the problems it's presently facing. It's insufficient. And yet we are locked into a society whereby, as we've said earlier, we unconsciously defer to the taller, dominant, older male who occupies a hierarchical position in a tree laden with fruit, whereas in fact the solutions that we need for society are like the random food that roving monkeys find. We have no idea who's going to come up with the smartest answer. And so Cooperative Conversations provides a vehicle whereby the smartest answer can come from anybody. I like that. I feel like it's a bit reflective of um, you always hear a Gen Y, you know, and oh they're lazy and da 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 da. And 
there's seems to be like how do you train for this generation and how do you train for this generation and what's coming up for me around this is you, you talked about the curiosity that you try to bring in with the play and the toys are you finding or do you see that younger people are more curious because they're closer to that childhood of playfulness and therefore can present better ideas or new perspectives or see things differently versus a generation that ha is calling on this is how we've done it before. Yeah, what are your thoughts? You're nodding. Um, all human beings have two forms of general intelligence. We have fluid intelligence, which is the capacity to learn stuff, mm -hmm. and we have crystallised intelligence, which is the capacity to know stuff. When we're young, we have lots of fluid intelligence, and we can learn stuff really quickly. And as we age, our capacity to learn stuff really quickly starts to diminish. The stuff that we know is now more concrete, more re relevant. This is a natural evolution. This is the way the wisdom of the elders was passed down to the young who learned it fast, right? The paradox is that the crystallised knowledge of the elders is probably insufficient in many ways to deal with contemporary problems. So the randomness, I mean, there's a, a little puzzle, um, and if anybody's got a pen in their hand, they can write this down. O double T double F double S blank blank. I'll say it again. O double T double F double S blank blank. The, the puzzle is, what's the last two letters? Okay? Right? And um, children get it really quickly, and university mm. professors can't get it. Wow. Right? Because their problem-solving strategies aren't nimble enough. They're not nimble enough. Children will try a blind gully, and then they'll say, that didn't work, and they'll try another one. Whereas um, adults are more likely to try a blind gully getting into the galley looked familiar, so they want to stay there and push the wall out at the other end. How do you then train to people that are, train people that are, you know, as you say, they're, I'm going to say, call it stuck. Yeah. Or they think they've learnt and they're just going with that, they don't want to pursue the gullies. Like, yeah. how can you bring that into training so people don't acquire more knowledge, but acquire, like, they actually learn? Sure. Um, to help people get unstuck, what you don't want to do is trigger their defensiveness. So what you don't want to do is to infer they don't know, or to infer they're wrong, because that will stop them listening, right? So uh, what I do in cooperative conversations is I provide people with little mini experiences that are sort of light bulb moments for people without triggering defensiveness. So I'm trying to get people to discover for themselves there's some stuff they don't know and there's some other people in the room it could be anybody who's smarter than they are because they get they get the you know like the two missing letters they get it quicker than the, the people who thought they were really clever PhDs and you know science degrees and everything else um, we have no idea where the next good idea is going to come from what we need to do as a society is to create and Parliament is exactly the wrong mechanism to do it, and public sector is exactly the wrong mechanism to do it because they are, they are yesterday's machinery for you know wise grumpy old men. Um, what we need to do is to provide mechanisms whereby the young and the nimble and the creative can get a voice.
okay, when I say the young and the nimble and creative, there are some young and nimble creative 80-year-olds 80, 80 mm. as well as five-year-olds, right? Um, and I don't want to be prescriptive about where the next good idea is going to come from. We do not know. What we need to know is have we planted sufficient fertile soil so that if they do start to blossom, we can honour them and magnify them and use them. Yeah, this is very fascinating. I So what's coming up for me now is a lot of our recent projects in e-learning have been around the conversations and we're training people on how to have effective communication. So for example, how to hold a performance conversation, yeah. how to call behaviours in the moment, how to in open a conversation about wellness. Yes. So we're trying to, like communication seems like it should be a basic skill, but yes. why are we not good communicators as humans? Um, we are good communicators as humans. Our, often our communication is a practised communication. We learnt it in the schoolyard or we learnt it around the family dining table or we learnt it in the office. And one thing human beings do particularly well is they mirror their peers. So if other people are engaging in bad behaviour, there's a good chance we might. To solve any communication problem, as, as um, Einstein said, the problems that we create cannot be solved at the same level as which we created them. So any communication problem cannot be solved by communicating. Any communication problem can only be solved by meta-communication. In other words, by stepping back out of the communication and talking about how we're communicating. And that's what cooperative conversations does. Cooperative conversations is all about meta-communication. So once people are equipped with those skills, and it's no different to if we're sitting here beside a roadway, it's no different to the people who are driving vehicles on this roadway weren't allowed on that roadway until they got a driver's license. And all that they care about in order to travel safely from A to B, and each person doing their own thing, is that the other vehicles on the road are operating under the same code of conduct as they are. So we have to, back again, create a shared code of conduct that's respectful, functional, honourable, equitable, right, and usable. Yeah. Is there any... I'm. You've given me a lot to think about, mm -hmm. uh, like, and you've answered my curiosity, you know, at this stage. Is there anything else you would like to share on this topic before we finish up? Uh, uh, I guess there might be, Kim. Um, my joy in sharing this with people, um, and it's visual as well as visceral, is watching the lights come on in people's eyes. Have you seen that today in our conversation? Yes. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> um, and that's my joy. That's my reward for doing this. Um, you know, I'm, I'm on the wrong side of 70. Um, that means I've learned some stuff, um, most of which I don't know. Um, but the little that I do know, it seems to be some people find useful. Um, and I'm more than happy to share it. Well, thank you, Ian, for having this conversation and being on our podcast, Learning with Bell Vista Studios. Um, I hope that has been a valuable conversation for you guys. And I suppose think first about how you can apply it to your own life um, and your own communication before you go thinking about how you can, you know, influence or start training it to others. I think look inwards first might be a good way to improve 
society. <laughs> Absolutely, Kim. Um, often we go through the uh, life um, wishing that other people, um, our peers, our parents, um, our bosses, would behave differently. And uh, getting them to behave differently is next to impossible. We can, in fact, encourage them to behave differently if we start to behave differently ourselves. Be that role model, people. Mm. Thank you for listening. Uh, details for Ian and all that we're about will be in the description of the video. Thanks for listening and have an awesome day. Thank you, Kim.